One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sheila Shoiga and welcome to Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not. But my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. This week I speak to the incredible Zoe Hollihan. The good sign of a good wedding is when people, you know, lose their shoes. They were <laughs> walking around looking for their shoes at the, at the breakfast uh, gathering. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was lovely. It was oh, lovely. Yeah. It's just, it's so hard to, you know, take that moment and, and file it in your head without comparing what happened, you know, four days later. I mean, it literally was taking you from the very highest high to the very lowest low. Mm. And with only, you know, in a matter of hours, everything, you know, my life had totally transformed forever in the very worst way. On the 23rd of July, 2018, Zoe and her husband, Brian, were on their honeymoon in Greece when disaster struck. Wildfires swept through the seaside town of Matty, where they were staying, and claimed the lives of 102 people. She miraculously survived despite her extensive injuries, while Brian unfortunately didn't. In this conversation, we hear how she and Brian met, what a wonderful man he was, their beautiful wedding day, and how her life changed forever just a few days later on their honeymoon. She also speaks about her dad and the close friendship they had, and how his death three weeks after that terrible day in Greece was yet another trauma to have to come to terms with. Her book, As the Smoke Clears, details her life since that day and it's incredibly powerful. This was by far one of the most moving conversations I have ever had and I'm in awe of Zoe's courage, strength and resilience. Here it is. 
Zoe, I'm honoured that you agreed to have a conversation with me and I suppose I'd love to start by asking you to talk about Brian and the type of man he was. Ah, my favourite topic of conversation, Sheila, um, is Brian O'Callaghan Westrop. Um, Brian was a wonderful man, um, as I'm sure you're aware from, you know, from what I wrote about him in in, in the book, but there's so much more to tell. Um, He was, well, he was my hero, to be honest with you, but he was also, you know, heroism ran through his veins, I believe. Um, He was a very caring individual. He had a great adventure spirit he loved to travel he loved to get on the back of that bike and off he'd go on some of his wonderful treks with his mate AD because for the record by the way I hate motorbikes so oh, really? I, was never, I was never going to be going on those little adventures with him <laughs> um, but uh, yeah he had a real appreciation for life and uh, certainly that that came through in the in the energy that he displayed in everything he did um, I, I spoke of a little bit about uh, the charity work that he did for mm. Blood Bikes East. Yeah. Um, and I think that that sort of demonstrates the type of person he was. He used to spend an awful lot of time, uh, you know, free time, giving up his free time to help people that were in need. And, and Blood blood Bikes in particular was a great passion of his. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that charity. Yeah, no, I am. Amazing work. Yeah. And it says a lot um, about him. It, it, I think it just it reflects the type of man as you said, he would give up his time to to do something so important and, you know, for no financial gain, just to be of service. Yeah, and without a word of complaint. I okay. mean, if that was me and I had to sit up all night long trekking up and down the country, you know, trying to uh, deliver this, you know, these life-saving yeah. medical supplies or, or organs sometimes or bloods um, to various different hospitals and then come back and maybe get an hour's sleep before going into work, well, you, wow. you could be sure I would have let the world know. It's a, it's a small minority of people that have that in them, that that generosity of spirit that they just want to give and help. Yes, and tremendous compassion. You know, yeah. he just had, um, yeah, he was just an extraordinarily, he was the kindest man I ever knew, quite frankly. So I was very honoured to have him in my life for a ludicrously short period of time. Of course, I only got four years, but I got four very good years with Brian. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for every moment that we did get to spend together. Tell us about the first time you met. The first time we met, um, <laughs> well, it was, I suppose you called it a blind date to a degree because I connected with Brian on a dating website and uh, I had actually given up on going that route to find romance at this stage um, yeah. because it had a litany of doozy dates in the yeah. run-up to meeting Brian. So <laughs> I had already stated in my head that this was going to be, you know, my last foray into digital dating. Um, but I, I met him in a local cafe and the idea was to have a coffee. And I walked in and I don't know if you have had any experience with this type of dating, Sheila. People put up their the photos, you know, and uh, on their profiles and take a lot of time and care. Well, I did certainly anyway, you know, making sure that everything, you're sending out the right message. And Brian had a wonderful profile. It certainly captured my imagination and, and my interest straight away. But he had the most goddamn awful uh, profile photo. <laughs> Brian is, was really handsome. Like, he was a gorgeous-looking guy. But, um, no, this photo did him no justice. And it was clean-shaven and, and kind of blurry. So when I walked in the side entrance to this cafe, 
um, <laughs> I was immediately met with, oh gosh, the worst situation that you could possibly be in if you're going on a blind date because there were two guys okay. at opposite ends of the cafe <laughs> at separate tables, both looked up, both could have been the bride from the photo. <laughs> I was mortified. <laughs> and there was one one chap sitting by the window, yeah. uh, really handsome, nice little beard. You know, I could already see sparkly blue eyes. He was cute, of course, he wore, wore blue that day to make sure. That was Brian, obviously. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I thought to myself, you know, that instant moment where you kind of go, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's cute. Uh, but I assumed automatically that he wasn't my date because the chap at the other end of the cafe was clean shaven. And that's all I really had to go on. Mm. So I started to walk towards <laughs> the wrong guy. And instantly in my head, I'm thinking, oh, I wish it was the dude with the beard. Um, but, oh, thank God, Brian stood up and called my name. Oh, brilliant. Saved okay, me saved you, yeah. A, a very embarrassing experience. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I went over and uh, Brian formally introduced himself. And like I said, automatically, I mean, I know this sounds very childish, but straight away I had a bit of a crush. No, it doesn't sound childish. It sounds lovely. And it happens a lot, you know, when it's right and it's an instant thing. So what did you feel? Was it just like he's cute, he's sexy, I fancy him? Or is it like, wow, there's, there's something here, there's something more here? Or was it all of those things together? It was, oh gosh, I suppose it was all of those things was together. It, yeah. I, I think, wow. you know, the, the, my first <laughs> my first feeling was probably relief that, you know, <laughs> um, that, that, that it wasn't, you know. <laughs> well, let, let me put it this way. I had some bizarre dates, you know, through this website uh, before I met Brian. And I had I had them all from the, I hate my ex-wife and this is a revenge oh, dear, date yeah. to, you know, the, the chap that clearly was not in his late 30s, but more so in his late 50s with the comb over, not being able to disguise the fact. So I was, my first reaction was relief that Brian was, yes, very handsome, but also seemed fairly, you know, compassmentous, <laughs> intelligent, um, you know, not yeah. an unadulterated liar straight off. I would look, we just, we, it, it was so easy from the get-go. You know, mm. uh, we... Look, what was supposed to be a coffee date turned mm. into a lunch date, turned into a dinner date, turned into going to the bar. An hour is what I had penciled in in my diary and it turned into 14 hours. Oh, I love it. So just couldn't get enough. Yeah. Couldn't get enough of him, you know. And, and just, clearly he uh, couldn't you know, get enough of you because, I mean, he'd be he'd be gone if he wasn't interested. He wouldn't have hung around. I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think it was a mutual, a mutual attraction. Definitely. Um, and and as I said, you know, you, you can get a lot from the ease of those first conversations. You mm. know, it was it was, um, yeah, as the conversation flowed, the laughter flowed. We learned a lot about each other. Um, one thing immediately that attracted me to him actually was he he seemed very respectful towards women and that's that means a lot to me so yeah. he because both of us have been married before and he you know unlike several of my previous dates he had only good things to say about his ex-wife there was mm. nothing derogatory there and that, that that showed me the mark of the man if you know what I mean absolutely and there's nothing there's nothing less attractive when a guy starts <laughs> you know rolling out a rant about how his woman did him wrong. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree completely. Yeah, we we were both of a. I suppose we were both ready. We yeah. were both ready at that stage to embrace 
uh, a real relationship. And look, we fell head over heels in love. I mean, there's, you know, there's no doubting that uh, because, you know, I, I finished that chapter in, in the book about um, mm. our first meet by, you know, basically having my first kiss with Brian and, and saying that in that moment, I, I genuinely felt like I never wanted to be kissed by another man again. Mm. So now that might sound a little OTT, but no, really, it doesn't. It doesn't. It sounds I, I really did fall head over heels. I, we both did. We mm. both did. And, and from that day, that was it, you know. So even though I say four years, I feel like he was stolen from me so quickly. But nonetheless, we li- we pretty much spent every moment of every day that we possibly could together. We moved in together very quickly after we started going out. And, and that was it, you know. Yeah. So we started our lives as we meant to go on and embraced every second. Some people are lucky enough to have that in their 20s, some in their 30s. In my case, it wasn't, wasn't until my 40s that I really, I feel, you know, met my soulmate. So, um, yeah, yeah and, and, and feel very lucky to have done so. Mm. What did you tell your pals after that first date about him? Oh, I told them that was it. I went back to the computer and deleted my profile. <laughs> I love it. Straight away, unceremoniously, goodbye. <laughs> so it was, um, yeah, and I mean, look, my 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 pals know me well enough to know that when I make up my mind, <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, go and do go and do it. So yeah. uh, they weren't weren't surprised at all. Um, I met him in October, and come Christmas, actually, it was quite funny. Uh, we used to all meet in the Bailey. Every Christmas, it was like our little oh, yeah. um, work breakup thing. And um, I invited everybody. I mm. invited my uh, brother, my younger brother. I invited all my mates, uh, threw them all in, went, this is Brian, we're living together. Hmm. I'm in love. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Here you go. And then like a lamb to the slaughter, I just threw him in there and then was going off talking to everybody in the bar. And I remember looking back and I was thinking, ah, he'll be fine. You know, <laughs> I love him. He'll be grand. So, yeah. And of course he was because Brian got on with everybody and you didn't need to worry about him. But yeah, yeah. it was a, kind of a fate to come for me that was it oh it's it's so gorgeous and yet obviously obviously I'm heartbroken for you because of the 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 relative short time that you were gifted together but you made a count and it sounds like you guys lived more in the in the nearly four years you were together than some people can do in a lifetime well in a way yeah but I Look, I would have given anything to have another hour, another day with him, you know. But yes, at least at least I don't have that regret. Yeah. You know, that I I know that I knew every minute that I was with Brian that I was lucky to be with him. I knew I was madly in love. Mm. I used to pinch myself frequently. I kinda of go, you know, mm. <laughs> I'm so lucky to have this type of guy in my life. So yeah, I at, at least I'd I'd have don't have that regret that I didn't appreciate what I have, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but you you obviously deserved it, too. And, you know, like attracts like. That's what I feel. Um, so I, there was there was obviously no no mistake in, in you guys connecting and, and being together. Um, can you talk about your wedding day? Because there are f- the photos in in your book as the smoke clears are absolutely gorgeous and it just looked like the best crack looked like you oh, were just, was. yeah, having the best day ever. I, I mean, it really was. It was an, an idyllic day. Mm-hmm. It really was. Um, 
I've, I've said before that in some ways, and this might sound a little bit strange, but in some ways, you know, when I was writing the book, writing about the wedding was actually harder in many ways than the tragic, horrendous things that happened afterwards. Because mm. when you remember that moment of perfect joy, you're hit with the realization that that's been taken away from you. So I love talking about Brian. I can now talk about the wedding day. I couldn't for a very, very long time, yeah. but it still jabs, you know, it hurts my heart when I talk about it, when I think about it. Um, yes, it was, it was just fantastic. It was a small enough wedding because we, as you know, this was second time round for both of us. So we had about 80 of our closest friends and our family with us. And it was just laughter and joy from the moment I woke up that day till the wee early hours when eventually he dragged me back up to bed mm. away from the party. Um, yeah, and, and you know, there wasn't a second of doubt in my head. There's a, a funny story I, I tell about, um, well, let's just say I wasn't exactly a reluctant bride. I couldn't wait to run up the aisle. Mm. <laughs> and we, we were getting married in, in a place called Clonabrini House, which was uh, in Meath. And it was just, it's just a stunning, stunning place. Yeah. And there was a beautiful rose garden and that's where the ceremony was taking place. And um, my poor dad wasn't well on, on the day of the wedding. And at the last moment he decided well my mum had phoned me and warned me actually the night before but he decided that he wasn't going to walk me up the aisle and he was just too frail to yeah, do so he yeah. was he was suffering from cancer at the time he was undergoing chemotherapy which was pummeling the living daylights out of him to be honest with you I was just glad he was there mm -hmm. you know I, I was just happy that both my parents were there um so at the very last moment, I mean, literally just a few minutes before I was to go up the aisle, I asked um, Stephen, my younger brother, to walk me. Mm. And he was delighted to do so. So everyone was congregated in this little garden and Stephen and I <laughs> were hiding around the corner behind this kind of, I don't know, little cops of trees yeah. and we just were so giddy like Stephen was practically restraining me from just running up I was kind of like are we there yet are we there yet can I marry him now can I marry him now? <laughs> it wasn't the most elegant demure <laughs> bride that you no I think yeah. that's I think that's fabulous and I think a lot of us could learn a lot from you as well I think you know playing it cool and playing it down why why waste the joy and deprive yourself of living it and enjoying it and if you feel a certain way to go with it it almost sounds, sounds childlike but in a beautiful brilliant well, way well it kind of was there definitely was nothing yeah. cool about the <laughs> no. and, and childlike is probably yeah, giddy I mean That's giddy great. so we started to giggle yeah Stephen and he, Stephen was telling me jokes and he was peeking around the edge you know and and we we actually just like a pair of kids got into a fit of giggles so much so that the whole congregation could hear <laughs> so then everybody else started to laugh yeah. so when the moment came eventually well you know it was only seconds in between but but I eventually get to walk up the aisle to Steve you know with Stephen um to Brian and um Poor Brian. Brian is so nervous he hasn't even turned round because AD, his best man and his best friend, had said, No, you can't you can't look at the bride until she's there. <laughs> you know, which is just absolutely ludicrous. And yeah, yeah. in a way it's probably a good thing because he would have seen me galloping up <laughs> dragging Stephen behind me. And everybody's laughing. Yeah. Everybody's laughing. And it was oh, brilliant. Yeah. It actually just set the tone. You know, 
it set the tone and mm. it sums up the whole day because yeah. it was just unadulterated joy. Uh, even the, the the celebrant, she was laughing. So by the time I get I get up to the sort of makeshift altar at the top of the garden, you know, everyone's creasing themselves. Brian, you know, looked oh gorgeous in his you know deep blue suit yeah. and of course I, I planned to smack her on him straight away you know oh. I broke all the rules you're not supposed to kiss the groom <laughs> as soon as you get there you know so um oh, yeah brilliant. uh yeah no no yeah as I said not great for keeping to the rules and regulations but uh, even the celebrant went ah now save that for later <laughs> you know, so. oh it's fantastic um, it's great and yeah. I you know, that's it. I would imagine then it just continued from there. A day of pure joy and crack and love. And this is meant to be. And let's live life and enjoy it. And it sounds like you're that kind of person and loved every moment with Brian. And, and that certainly was the case, probably amplified on your wedding day. Yes, but I mean, he was the same, you know, uh, he would just make every second count, basically. Yeah. So um, I, I, we really did. We just had the most wonderful day. There was a big sing song in the Shabin later on. I mean, but I danced my little socks off for hours in, in the marquee before that. And um, yeah, but as I said, reluctantly, I, I was sort of dragged away at 4.30 in the morning and the party was still going on at breakfast. I, I, I say the good sign of a good wedding is when people you know, lose their shoes. They were <laughs> walking around looking for their shoes at the, at the breakfast uh, gathering. So it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was lovely. It was oh, lovely. Yeah. It's just, it's so hard to, you know, take that moment and, and file it in your head without comparing what happened, you know, four days later. I mean, it literally was taking you from the very highest high to the very lowest low. Mm. And with only, you know, in a matter of hours, everything, you know, my life had totally transformed forever in the very worst way. I know it's been said to you a lot over the, the course of the last number of weeks and months and, and talking about, you know, your book and, and, and what you've been through. And I think there's a, a general feeling from everyone, I think, that interacts with you or listens to you is that I've certainly been in awe of your strength Um to, to even be able to have this conversation, no mind what you've been through. But and I do feel uncomfortable asking you, I do. And I know it's very difficult for you. Well, actually, I don't know. I don't have a clue because I haven't been in your shoes. But after the wedding, you went off on your honeymoon and you mm. went to, you know, paradise and what was going to be a beautiful time together, celebrating this new phase in your lives together. And you went to Greece and it started really, really well. Um, but then a few days in, as you said, it turned into a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, we were only in the country two days. Mm. Um, we went to this uh, beautiful little sort of seaside town called Mati, which was near the port of Rafina. And we had one night in Rafina. And then the following day, the, the, the fire occurred. So we woke up on the 23rd of July. Married on the 19th, as I said. So we woke up on the 23rd of July and uh, God, it was a hot day. You know, I, I had kind of pushed. There's no kind of I had pushed for for Greece for the honeymoon. I studied ancient Greek and Roman in college. I was not a diligent student, by the way, but mm. there were lots of rooms and there were lots of things that I wanted to see. Um, I'd been to certain islands, but I'd never been to Athens. And Matty was just on the outskirts of Athens. So, um, but that's also yeah. very common that, you know, I've heard that from so many of my friends 
that they kind of it's like it's like the bride gets her way when it comes to choosing the honeymoon destination. So that wasn't out of the ordinary either. that You pick the location. No, no but, it, it uh, you know, it's one of those what ifs, uh, you know, one oh, of those God. guilty thoughts in the I back know, but... of your head. Why, why, you know, because I really did push for this. Brian wasn't a fan of the heat. And I remember it was like a negotiating tactic that I used. And I feel, I feel so guilty about this, you know, because he went to Vegas with a couple of his friends for uh, his stag. And I remember saying, well, if you can handle Vegas and you can handle the heat of Vegas in whenever it was May, I think. Um, well, then, well, then surely you can handle, you know, the heat of, of, of Greece in July. And uh, I, we laughed at the time, but, you yeah, know, I... Yeah. I yeah, like I said, it's one of those thoughts that rattles around in my brain in the early hours of the morning still to this day. Yeah, yeah we, we went to Matty and uh, we woke up on that morning and it was really, really hot. You know, I remember we we were we had a lovely meal, but we spent most of the morning in the pool and even the pool was hot by noon, okay. you know. So, um, yeah, we, we, we got up, we dried off, we wished his mother a happy birthday. It was her birthday on the 23rd of July. Um, and we, you know, we went back inside to the air conditioned villa to cool off and we were on honeymoon, so I don't need to draw, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> line up the dots there for you. Yeah. Um, we could call it a siesta if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I woke up, I woke up without Brian in, in the bed beside me. And, um, one thing that I... You know, you say you, you don't know how it feels. One thing I, I you know, I, I've tried to get across in the book is is this, um, the sheer confusion that I, I felt from the moment that I woke up. Brian wasn't there. In fact, I, w- I was woken by his voice calling me to urgently get out of bed. And when I say the confusion, I've no idea how long I was asleep. I've no idea what time of the day. I could have been asleep for an hour. It could have been one, two, three o'clock. It could have been four o'clock in the afternoon. I've no, I've no idea. Yeah. Um, because the the light had changed, mm. um, and and by that I, obviously what I mean is with fire comes smoke, and and you know you know the light had become dim. Um, anyway, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but I woke up and I I ran downstairs. I, I actually didn't run downstairs. I pulled on my still wet bikini from the from the floor, and the steps in the or the staircase in the villa, um, they were like that old fashioned, really heavy wooden stairs. So I remember vividly thinking, oh, God, Zoe, don't slip now and fall down these stairs. The last thing you need on your honeymoon is a broken leg. So I kind of tenderly and carefully ran down the stairs um, mm. and met Brian at the bottom. And he was just standing there transfixed. And he was looking out over the patio doors, which were wide open. And the garden was on fire. It, it was on fire, like it wasn't little smouldering embers in the corner. This was they were, These were big, red, raw flames all along the edge of the garden. So the pool was closest to us, but right behind that, everything was on fire. And um, as if sort of waking up from this trance that he was in, that had held him there for a few seconds, he he just sort of snapped out of it and he quickly closed the patio doors. And he told me to do the same with the the doors that led out to the kitchen. And as I looked through to the doors that led out to the kitchen, I could see that the whole back of the villa or the gardens behind the villa were totally on fire. So I slammed them shut really quickly and he just said, we have to go and we have to go now. So... I ran upstairs, I grabbed a dress, 
a long dress, I thought at the time. Strange things come into your head, by the way, when, when you're in this sort of panic. I thought at the time, well, the long dress will protect my legs. It was the only one that I had that was sort of heavy cotton. Um, I threw that on. I didn't even bother zipping it up. I, I grabbed wedge sandals, grabbed my bag, threw our passports and whatever was in the safe. So our passports, keys, wallets, and that was it. Yeah. And that was done in seconds, but it felt like hours. It felt like... You know when you have those nightmares when your limbs won't work properly? Mm. When you're trying to run but your feet are glued to the floor mm. and and everything is going in s horrific slow motion. That's what it felt like from, from that moment. But it probably was, as I said, less than a minute when I was upstairs and then I was back down. And Brian, Brian was ready and waiting with the car keys. Um, something I probably should have mentioned beforehand when we when we arrived two days before to the villa villa aliki the owner who was lovely lovely woman um her name was aliki and and she uh she'd warned us that on occasion in that area the electricity could be cut off yeah now the reason this is significant is obviously because the villa was surrounded by large electric gates mm -hmm. And at the time when she was talking about what you'd need to do if the electricity went off, she gave us this Allen key kind of device that would crank it open manually. I remember thinking, ah, <laughs> Brian was the one, the sensible one listening to her instructions. I, I had no notion where that Allen key was or really yeah. didn't actually hear much what she said. But it turned out to be crucial information because obviously by the time we got out of the villa, the electricity was off. Mm -hmm which meant that we couldn't escape by the car. Now, we didn't realise that at first. Brian tried the beeper. The beeper didn't work. I was in the car at that stage. He told me to stay in the car and he tried he had to run back in. So we're wasting time. This is all crucial seconds, minutes that we're wasting. Because as I'm sitting in the car, he ran back in to get this Allen key device, came back out, started trying to, you know, crank okay. open this gate. The garden, I mean, it's just literally... First of all, it was intensely hot in the car. It, it literally felt like I was sitting in an oven. Um, the garden everywhere, all, all around us, there are these little tornadoes of burning debris um, whirling. This, the, the wind had picked up. So at that stage, yeah, we felt like we were sitting in a tornado of hell, basically. And um, my brain is standing outside of that, trying to get the gate open. So, you know, Eventually, I just jumped out of the car and I ran to him and we tried everything we could, but we couldn't we couldn't get the gate to budge. Um, we turned around and the car is surrounded by flames at this stage anyway. Yeah. And we realized that there's nothing for it, so we're going to have to run for it. So um, now these gates were high. I don't know, maybe nine or ten feet high. So um, I'm not really sure how I got over it because I'm not the most nimble of creatures, but Brian, I presume, kind of whooshed me over the gate. And on the landing on the other side, I dislocated my knee. My knee popped, my patella popped out of its, whatever you'd call it, socket. Mm. Um, so I landed very awkwardly and I remember feeling a, a little bit sick. You know, I don't know if you've ever done that sort of injury, but it, it sort of turns your stomach. It makes you feel ill straight away. Mm. But you don't register pain or I didn't register the pain at the time because by the time... survival mode, I suppose, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Byron, you know, jumped across and, and was there by my side and everywhere we're looking, it's just everywhere is on fire. And we feel like, by the way, at that stage, it felt like we were the only people in the world because there was no, couldn't see anybody. You couldn't hear anything but this roar, this constant whirling roar around us. Um, and it was really hard to breathe. You know, every breath burnt. It burnt yeah. your nostrils, it burnt your throat, it burnt your lungs. You could feel it. it was like swallowing acid. So we were kind of almost saving our breath as much as we could. Um, I asked Brian to promise that um, we'd make it, uh, which was kind of childish. It was an impossible promise to ask of him. But, you know, Brian never lied to me. So I reckoned if he promised, then we'd be OK. Um, and he promised and he held my hand. And just even in him doing that, I thought we would. Even surrounded by all of these flames, if he said we were going to make it through, you know, he was the man with the plan, so we were going to make it through. So uh, we started to run, and we turned left, and we went up the hill, and we were met by a wall of fire. So that didn't work. So we we, we turned down, and we, we sort of going downhill towards what we assumed was the sea. So, I mean, you really couldn't see much. You couldn't see much in front of you. You know, the, it, it was getting darker all the time. Yeah. The smoke was so thick. Your eyes were streaming. Um, and as I said, uh, you know, just breathing and talking was impossible virtually. Uh, but we we were going in what we assumed was the direction of the sea. And we were right, actually, because we bumped into a group of people that were coming up from the sea. And I remember afterwards that they were wearing swimwear. So they must have been caught out. So this fire must have, you know, started very quickly, if you think of it that way. Yeah. Because they were on the beach. And they were coming up, as I said, from the sea and they spoke English. And they told us that we couldn't go the way we were going. Um, they said it was impassable or something like that. So... Um, and then they kind of ran up the direction we were coming from. We were trying to tell them to stop going that way, but they just disappeared. They just disappeared into the, into the smoke. So we never saw them again. And we were just for a moment stuck. We didn't know which way to turn. And, and it was in that moment that I realized my dress was on fire. So my legs were burning. And I registered pain this time because Jesus, that hurt. Um, and um, I was screaming and Brian was trying to put out the fire with his hands. So if you can imagine if it was burning me, you could imagine his poor hands. But um, anyway, he managed to stomp out the, the, the flames and we had to keep moving. We couldn't stay where we were. So we, we turned and we went back up to the main road and we went the opposite direction this time. And as we met the main road, um, we came across this little group of friends, of, of, sorry, of children, a small group of children, um, four, five of them. I couldn't even remember the number. Um, and one of them was a, a mere toddler. One was in, in, a, in a nappy. And they were just standing there in the middle of the road. Like, like the other group, they just had emerged out of nowhere. So we ran to them and actually I think it was kind of interesting because automatically five seconds before all I was thinking about was, you know, our safety. And then all of that goes out the door when you see these vulnerable, teeny tiny people yeah. um, in the middle of the road surrounded by flames. So we just grabbed them. We just took them up in our arms 
and um, almost simultaneously this car emerged again out of nowhere um, out of the, the, the dark gust smoke and I could see so it was that close to us we were obviously standing in the middle of the road um, we could see that there were two they looked like elderly adults in the front and, and one person in the back so we stopped the car and they opened the doors and we just literally bundled the children into the back seat. But then we realised there wasn't enough room for us in the car. The car was packed. Yeah. So um, we begged the driver to pop the boot and he did. And we got in. And it was a small car. It's such a strange thought, but it, 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 it looked like... You, you know the drama Colombo, you know that kind yeah, of car. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, like yeah. A, a small, old, I suppose you'd call it a banger, to be yeah, honest with yeah, you. Okay. Was, you know, it looked barely roadworthy, but it was it was moving. So um we got in and it was there was hardly enough room for the two of us in the boots, so we kind of wrapped our our bodies around each other. Um and the car took off and we had to hold the lid of the boot with our hands so you know because we were too big the, the boot we couldn't pull the cover down um and very quickly with the flames all around this car our hands started to stick to the boot so our hands were melting to the surface of the boot my my left hand in particular got really really badly burned and um and then I realised my 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 hair was on fire too. I had long extensions at the time, and they were on fire. So they were they were cooking into my face, and I was crying. And Brian was trying to put out my dress because my dress again was on fire, because these flames were licking us in through this open half open boot, you know. And, oh God! And then the um, then the car crashed, and this tree, this huge burning tree, just came down on top of the boot, the open boot at this stage. And Brian got the brunt of it and um, in shock, he just rolled out of the boot onto the road and he died. He just died in front of me. And I remember just calling out his name, hoping that the last thing he'd hear would be my, me calling out and telling him I loved him. And uh, all he could say was, why? That's all. That's all I could hear. Um, why is right. And then I, I, I just assumed I was not going to be far behind him anyway, because I was in my own coffin at that stage. So the tree was totally on top of me and I was just everywhere was burning at that stage. So uh, I just stayed there and assumed it. I was just about to die. And then, as you know, I got rescued. Oh, Zoe, I... I... I actually don't know what to say. I'm... I know the story. I've read it. I've heard it. But... Your bravery in, in retelling a living nightmare is astounding. I, uh, 
And I said earlier about the, you know, the, the what ifs, the guilty moments. I kept thinking if I'd only just held on to his hand tighter. Oh God. With my good hand, then I could have saved him. The unfairness of it all, I was rescued and it was, it couldn't have been more than minutes. It couldn't have been more than, and everybody in that car was rescued. The kids, thank God, they all survived. The people in the car, they had suffered very minor injuries. I, I suffered severe burns, obviously, all over. But he was, you know, just meters away from being rescued too. So. And in fact, when they found Brian, he was meters away from the ocean. So we'd actually traveled much further than, than I thought we had. So he should have survived basically. Yeah. yeah. He should have been rescued too. I think in a way that's the most unfair thing. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And of course, further down the, this journey, when I, I talk about when I was in the hospital, and I was taken to a different hospital first to the, the, the main one, the Matero, where I received amazing care but the first one was not the best to be honest with you but when I was taken to that first hospital the first thing I started to do was rewrite what I had seen yeah. I decided to erase Brian's death I started begging everybody from the moment I was rescued and I was taken to a little hut where they had to cut off my clothes because I was just burning it they the, the the fabric was just eating into me. And all I could do was keep asking anybody, anybody who'd listen, go find my husband. He's there. He rescued me. Go find my husband. He's, his name is Brian. 
because I decided that, that no, that didn't happen, that life couldn't possibly be that cruel, that the finest man I'd ever known couldn't possibly be taken that way. So yeah. I just, uh, like I said, erased it, erased it from my mind. And it wasn't until a few days later when my older brother had travelled over from Dublin to see me. Um, and he was taken straight to the mortuary and he had to identify Brian's body and then he had to break the news. And that's when the truth really began to sink in. As you said, he was the, he was the finest man you ever knew and it certainly sounds like not just him, but both of you are just amazing people. You saved those kids. Who knows what would have happened to them had you not but lifted them up? But would have done it. Brian must have had three kids in his arms, you know, or four kids possibly. I didn't mm. even know the number because he was so strong. Yeah. You know, I remember he just took, like I said, you know, he was the man with the plan. He just took action straight yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, he... And that's why I, I I describe him as the the hero that he is. I mean, he was always just looking after everybody else. Yeah. Thankfully, it was my job for a while to look after him. But in the end, yeah, I couldn't save him. So uh, that was pretty shit. <laughs> Sorry for cursing. But not sometimes. at all. Not at all. But I, I, I just, I feel, no other way. <laughs> I feel for you so much saying that because, like, you've been through hell and back. What you went through yourself personally, and not to, you know, even when you talk about picking Greece as a location and and struggling with that, and and then you couldn't save him. Like, you know, you, oh my God, it's, it's not. You know, this is not your fault. This is not your fault. Well, it took a long time. It took a lot of therapy. Really? To work through all of that stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, for a start, you know, when I had, and I, I know you're you're familiar with the, the, the story, you know, I mean, yeah. first of all, I had a month in, in intensive care in Greece. I was in and out of surgery every two to three days. They saved my hand, which was really, really severely damaged. I mean, when I was saved from the boot of that burning car, I remember my eyes were just transfixed on this hand, or one eye was, because the other the side of my left side of my face was melted glow, so I had no sight of my eye at that stage. But with my good eye, I could see that there was virtually no hand left, like the flesh, the skin, that it was all peeling away. I could see bones. That's how severely my hand was burned, you know, and it was nothing short of miraculous that Mr. Mutaglis, who was my surgeon in the Matera, saved it. And he saved my legs and he saved my eyesight and so much more. Um, and I was there for a month and then three weeks in, my dad passed away. Yeah, Jesus. Um, he had a massive heart attack. And my last conversation with my dad was that telling him that Brian had died because I didn't want him to know because I knew he was seriously ill and he really loved Brian and I thought that this would be <laughs> the last thing he'd need to hear so um, and then he passed away and I couldn't go to the funeral because I was still in intensive care so yeah um, 
uh, and when I came back to Ireland, as you know, then I got ill again and I nearly died from a very rare form of sepsis. So, uh, yeah, a lot of therapy, a lot yeah. of therapy was needed to get through all of these things. Um, you couldn't you couldn't write this. You could not write this level of. Awfulness, just sheer. well, you couldn't imagine, you know, you I mean, when people talk about God and spirituality, I mean, you couldn't uh, imagine that any God could possibly be so cruel. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, take these two wonderful men. Yeah, dad was, oh, he was wonderful. He was wonderful. He was my pal, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He was a really funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> He had a way of telling a story. Do you know somebody that can just really tell a good story? He was yeah. uh, definitely entertainer's blood running through his veins. So, um, yeah, I was very close to Dad. And Dad adored Brian, you know, because Dad never approved of any man that <laughs> <I> ever <laughs> brought to his table, I can tell you. Um, yeah, not, a, not yeah. good enough for his daughter until Brian, was that it? Yeah, really genuinely yeah yeah like, like any of them well he liked them but you know he'd kind of give me that look and i go okay <laughs> <laughs> you know but he was just mad about brian the two of them was i don't know put the world to rights talk nonsense basically politics and sports stuff that i had no interest in but they just they got on so well and you know brian lost his dad when he was very young Actually, Brian's dad died at age 46 and Brian died at age 46. Okay. Something that I, I couldn't quite get my head around. I only discovered Dennis's age when um, when I was writing the book and I wanted to make sure I got my facts right. And it was only then I realized they both died. So at 46 is just too bloody young, so frankly, young. Um, to be taken. But... Uh, yeah, Brian and Dad, they just, yeah, they, they, they got on like a house on fire. I remember thinking it was so funny because Brian bloody hated golf, but he went and he bought a full golf kit. What do you call them? The basket oh, with the Yeah, the golf gloves. gloves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's not called a basket, Caddy, or whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> I remember he went out and he got, because Dad loved golf, so Brian would play golf with him. Yeah. You know, and they'd just go off and they'd spend hours together. I mean, they were just really enjoyed each other's company. I loved that. And again, again, that says a lot about Brian, that he would make the effort into something in a sport that he had no interest in. But it was a bonding with your dad and he wanted to spend time with him. He really did, you know, and. Uh, first time dad got sick, Brian and I were just in the early stages of dating. I'm not even sure if we were living together at that stage. It was really early. And. Uh, yeah, dad had collapsed and he was in Vincent's hospital and I was absolutely terrified. You know, in a lot of ways, I'd seen a lot of life, but I was very immature in one one particular aspect because I never really got my head around the fact that my parents weren't immortal. Yeah. Never even crossed my mind that at some stage in life I was going to lose either one of them. And when dad got sick, and I mean really sick, I was just absolutely petrified and I just would not leave his bedside. And he was in Vincent's and he'd had some tumours removed from his bowels and from his stomach. And um, 
I just sat there night after night, just wouldn't leave, wouldn't leave the bedside <laughs> to such a degree that I remember there was this lovely nurse and he used to, you know, very carefully clean the ward over and over and over again. And at one stage, you know, I said, can I clean as well? Because <laughs> I wasn't going to leave. Dad was asleep. Yeah. And I just, so I, just to do something, I'd yeah. take a cloth or whatever and spray it down with disinfectant, something, of course, we've all become very familiar with yeah. nowadays. But, um, and the nurse was so sweet. They just let me stay because I just wouldn't leave. And so Brian came into Vincent's and he was studying at the time for his master's. And he'd sit for hours downstairs studying in the cafe while I'd sit for hours day and night upstairs by dad's bedside. Eventually dad, you know, was awake and obviously other members of my family, my brothers and my mum were in and out. But he knew I'd been there and I just told his hand he knew I'd been there for, you know, a long time. Anyway, so dad was asking after Brian and I said, oh, he's here. I said, what do you mean he's here? He's not here. He was looking around the room. And I said, no, he's here. He's downstairs. He's downstairs. You know, would you like to say hello? And he said, what's he doing downstairs? Of course I'd like to say hello. What's he doing downstairs? And I said, oh, mom. Or I said, dad, he's been there, you know, for the last three or four days, nonstop. <laughs> well, you know, trying to get me to come home and have yeah. some dinner every now and then. <laughs> so anyway, um, dad was astounded. So Brian came up. And only I knew that the last time Brian had been in Vincent's hospital was to say goodbye to his own father. Oh, God, really? So I was really worried this would be really hard for Brian. Yeah. But no, he came in with a beaming smile and all the papers that he'd read to dad and the two of them. And I just I remember thinking, well, now maybe I can just leave, leave for a little bit and go outside and take a walk around the block. And that's what I did. And I just left them. And believe you me, had I not just wholeheartedly trusted Brian with my life, I would not have left him there with my dad. You know, I, so do you understand the type of man I'm talking yeah, about? I, I that's do. who he was. I do. And you were a real team by the sound of it, too. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, absolutely. We did everything together. So that's 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 hard to get used to again, you know, Um you know, no longer being part of a team. And I would always, I was always an independent person before I met Brian, but he's the first one I really gave into being a team, yeah. you know, okay. sharing decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it's funny how easy it is to get used to that kind of partnership. It's yeah. not so easy to get used to when it's taken away from you. So, um, that was that was more therapy. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever tried therapy, Sheila? I have. I have. And my belief. Can you guess I'm a fan? Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm a fan of therapists. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like my 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 feeling is that everyone should go to therapy, regardless of what you've been through. I think everybody can benefit from it. Here, here. Yeah. And what's better than being able to talk about yourself for an hour and a half? Exactly. Two hours, <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I had some some wonderful help um, in St. James's Hospital. Um, so I, I, I was uh, discharged from from the Burns unit at Halloween of that year. So I've been in hospital, I suppose, from mid-July until the end of October. Yeah. And I still had an awful lot of injuries to tend to. 
I talk a lot about. And there are some very, I think, very funny passages in the book about, you know, how I uh, learned how to walk again. That you might be surprised to hear why that would be funny. But um, my God, I was as stubborn as a mule with the poor (laughs) physiotherapists in St. James's. I was what you might term a difficult patient. (laughs) Uh, I blame a lot of it on the morphine for the pain, but... Maybe I should blame a bit more on my <laughs> my obstinate nature, but um, but you yeah, do so you do you do have a great sense of humor, and I suppose you know I, I I found with so many people that I've spoken to, not just through this podcast, but just in life, that when you've been through some really dark times, humor is a very powerful tool to to get you through. And yet it's strange; it's all it's contradictory, you know, to to, yeah. to where you're at. I mean, you're in this deep deep darkness and then this little bolt of light comes through and that's that's how it feels yeah you know and and then there's the you know the conflict of should I be laughing you know I've lost my husband I've lost my father should I be laughing but there are moments when it's just I I make the comparison to laughter at a funeral you know it's inappropriate but it's inevitable and if you have that survivor spirit in you it's going to happen at some stage and I think anybody anyway who spent long periods of time in hospital if you don't have a sense of humour you are actually going to go out of your mind Mm. Um, and I was surrounded I was blessed by the very finest of people you know in the in the medical field so um yeah, there were there were there were some very, some very funny moments in in both Greece and and in Dublin in St James's. And when I when I left hospital, I went home obviously, and I was living at home alone. That's when I started to write, incidentally, because I thought I'd go absolutely out of my mind if I didn't have something to keep myself pre- preoccupied with. Um, but it wasn't until really the tail end of that year until I reached Christmas, which was just hell, and New Year's, that I knew then I really did need some psychological assistance, can we put it that way? Yeah, yeah. Um, because Christmas and, and uh, New Year's pretty much did me in. You know, that was just, that was just torture. All of this enforced happiness everywhere I went. And I think really the grief really hit. I think it was probably a little bit like this ticking time bomb that eventually had to go off because all the while I was in hospital, I was focusing on, I mean, I was so ill when I got back to St. James's that I I nearly died. So I had multiple organ failure. Um, I was put on a ventilator. I had to have a tracheostomy to help me breathe. Um, so I had to learn not only how to walk, I had to learn how to talk, talk. to breathe for myself, to swallow. I had to learn how to use my my limbs again, my hands again. I was literally like a baby, a damaged baby. And I had to learn all of these life skills from scratch. So you can imagine all my focus really was on survival. But when mm-hmm. I got out of hospital and when I got home and then Christmas hit, it was only then I actually had the the mental space to realize the people I'd lost and the life that I'd lost. That's, as I said, when the grief really hit and that's when I really needed help. So I, I thankfully, I was very much blessed by um, being connected with uh, Dr. Sonia Collier in James's and she saved my life, really. 
to be honest. I don't think I'd be here talking to you if it wasn't for her. So yes, I am a huge, huge fan of therapy. And I, if nothing else, you know, if no other message comes through from my book, from my story or from talking to you today, is that there are so many people that have contacted me since I, I published this a couple of months ago that have contacted me that are suffering from grief. Mm, especially this year. Especially this year. Yeah. So many. And it's that sudden grief. There's no preparation. People are just stolen yeah. so quickly from them. Um, and the one thing I say over and over again is you have to go talk to somebody. You have to talk to somebody. You have to get it out. You know, find somebody. There are, there are professionals out there that can help you. And there are people out there just desperate for that help. I think I think once this pandemic, once the country opens up, once this pandemic, please God, is finally finished, um, finally finished with us, I should say. Yeah. Uh, I think that every psychologist in the country and psychiatrist in the country, they're, yeah, they're going to be cues to their door. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. With and you. I don't want people to be, you know, ashamed of asking for help either. You know, this is. This is how you survive. Completely. You know, there's only there's only so much warrior we have in us. We need our little army of warriors to keep pushing us on. You know, I I, I feel that the only reason I survived is because I had so many people mm. help put me back together again. Um, yeah. And crucially, one of those was my therapist. So it was years, years of therapy, two years pretty much before I was ready to re-enter the world, I suppose you could say. When you said that Brian's asked word was why? How often have you asked yourself the same or I said the word why? Every day. <laughs> yeah. A million times a day. I mean, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to this. I'm not the only person in the world who's ever said why was this person taken from me? You know, why did this terrible thing happen to me? Why is my body destroyed and scarred for life? You know, why goes on and on? I have so many whys. But then the other side of it is you can drive yourself mad with whys. Yeah. I think writing helped hugely, you know, to just get it all out. In fact, really, to be honest with you, I had no intention of really writing a book to begin with. I just wanted to try and work out why the hell this had happened. So... Um, I've always gone to writing, you know, that's that's been my, my go to place. I always kept journals when I was younger, uh, particularly when there was a problem afoot, when I needed to untangle a web. Yes. I, I you know, I'd, I'd start to write it down and then somehow I'd be able to make sense. I'm not sure I've made sense. I'm not sure I could ever make sense of what has happened. But yeah, writing definitely has been very therapeutic. Um, and, and cathartic, I suppose you could say, in in that. I fight the whys a little bit in my head. I, I, I don't want to become so overshadowed by that yeah. that I can no longer keep going, you know. You'll drown in that question. Yeah. I you have to keep your head above imagine. water. That's kind of mm. the way I see it. Brian would want me to keep going, I think, you know, and um, I feel his strength around me quite a lot. So, yeah, so that's interesting because I know you you 
you speak about not having a belief in God and you've mm. touched on it in this conversation, but yet you feel, Brian, and I was going to ask you, I was wondering, yeah. would it be appropriate <laughs> to ask you if you if you sensed or felt that he, he was he was still with you, but you do feel that. I mean, clear, clearly I'm a total hypocrite. <laughs> no, not at all. Not I at laugh all. about this quite a lot, actually, because, you know, I've, I've been an atheist since my early teens. Um, yeah. And yet, <laughs> uh, I don't know what I believe in anymore. You know, I mean, I certainly believe in energy and I feel his energy. I'm wearing his ring, you know, I wear it every single day. And I feel that that gives me the strength to get through from morning to night. Yeah. Um, there's a particular place in my home where his energy is strongest. I know to some people listening, that's going to sound absolutely nuts. But but to plenty of people listening, it's, it's going to sound it's it's going to sound like it makes sense because I've spoken to so many people who will connect with that as well. Um, mm. Yeah. And it's a place that he belonged, you know, so. Um, yeah. And and my father, too, you know, I, I talk about um, the insanity of grief in one of my chapters. And that was a really, really hard chapter to write. Yeah. Um, when I talk about trying to work things out, you know, I was because uh, I was aware that I was really laying it all out there and a lot of people would kind of go, OK, it's off to the loony bin with her. You know, I was having dad visions. I was seeing my father everywhere for quite a period of time. And actually, I found out since since talking to so many people mm. about grief that that's actually quite a common phenomenon as well, where people just kind of get a glimpse of the, the loved one that they've lost. Um, but dad was everywhere for a while. Yeah. It's actually quite funny because, I mean, sometimes these visions would be absolutely ludicrous. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I'd be, you know, heading to St. James's campus because um, I used to go there three to four days a week for a long, long time after I was discharged. And I remember I was walking down and there's dad. And he has the same kind of gait as dad. He has that little skip in his step. And, you know, he has the same thick hair, even through the cancer, dad never lost his hair. And he's walking towards me. And I just remember feeling, oh, my heart is filled with love and joy at seeing him there. And next thing, I'm, I'm face to face with a man who obviously comes from the West Indies. <laughs> that is, no, does not resemble my father whatsoever. And he's probably looking at this deranged one with a limp and a crutch going, what is she doing? I was pretty much ready to embrace this total on the street. You know, and it was Aww. just, it was just something. Yeah. There was an essence of, there was something in him. Must have been the walk. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I needed a stronger prescription of my glasses. And then, of course, the pain comes when the realisation that, you know, no, it's not him. Yeah. And no, he's not in this world. And you're not going to see him in this world again. But these visions, they, you know, they went on for, for, for months to such a stage that I really actually started to get quite worried. I phoned my mum. And this would be the sort of stuff that I probably wouldn't have shared too much with my mum because she'd had enough suffering as it was but I did share this I said oh I saw dad again today mum and that's uh, that's about two dozen times you know in the last fortnight and she said oh yeah that that happened with me when I lost my father oh I kept really? seeing him everywhere wow. and she said enjoy it while it happens Zoe because in time that'll fade and I remember you know thinking well Maybe you haven't totally gone out of your tiny mind just yet, Zoe. So there was a, a moment of, you know, 
gratification about that. But the other thing was, yeah, it was sad. And I'm sad because the visions no longer happen, obviously. Okay. That was a certain period of intense, they called it complex grief. Grief, yeah. Um, you know, and, and they, ah, he might drop by. You never know, I might see him again someday. But yeah, that was, and so I, I speak a lot about these, I suppose, the symptoms of grief. Uh, in that chapter and how I was, you know, trying to work my way through them. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Kubler-Ross's, what is it, the seven stages of grief? Have you ever heard of Dr. Elizabeth? I do, I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I laughed my head off when I read the seven stages. I was going seven, there are 777 stages, you know. And there's no neat order that they come in you know they're all higgledy-piggledy you know you're not going to have be angry on monday sad on tuesday guilty on wednesday that's not the way it, you know that's not the way it works um but yeah. uh, I, I i have to tell you can i tell you something very quickly about her because i was quite fascinated i know this is totally off topic no no I, I, I no i'm i'm, I'm with you yeah because i was kind of fascinated by her for a certain period of time while i was as i said writing about my own grief i was researching you know, how other people handle handle their stages of grief and her name kept popping up. And she wrote a very interesting journal at the at the end of her life, which basically discounted everything that she'd ever put out there about these seven stages because she'd never lost anybody. And when eventually she lost a man that she loved, she realized that it was all chaos, that there was no sense, no order, yeah. no defined way of processing grief. And she almost discounted her life's work. And I wondered how anybody could write about grief if they hadn't suffered it themselves. So, you, you know. <laughs> now that you've mentioned her, there's a, there's a quote of hers that I absolutely love, to be fair. And, and I wonder at what stage at, at, in her life did she write it? But I've been thinking about this as I've been listening to you speak because you've been speaking about Brian, but we're also hearing about the type of person that you are and how strong you are. And I fundamentally believe that you have such a huge heart and it's the, do you know the beautiful people quote? Yeah. So I'll, if I'll just, for those who are listening who maybe don't, I'll just, I'll, I'll say it if that's okay, because I absolutely adore it. The most beautiful people we've known are those who've known defeat, known suffering, known struggle known loss and have found their way out of those depths. These people have an appreciation, a sensitivity and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people don't just happen. That's wow. you. That's you. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm not quite sure I agree with you, but thank you. I'll take I'll take that for today. No, I've yeah. been thinking it's so weird that you mentioned her because I've been thinking of that quote this entire That's conversation. Bizarre. Yeah. That's bizarre. Actually. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Bizarre, yeah. Um, she was a very interesting lady. And as you can imagine, it's a strange thing. I almost started studying all these theories on grief as a way of sort of trying to process my own. Yeah. Um, so she did help me in mm. that way, you know, and I found her actually fascinating because, as I said, for her to be brave enough towards the end of her life to admit that maybe it's not that she got it wrong, but maybe she didn't fully comprehend, like I like I call it, the insanity of grief, because it is an insanity for a little while. I think it's important that people do talk about grief a little yeah. bit more. 
Mm-hmm. You know, because in Ireland, we're really good at, as I said before, funerals and God help all those people that haven't been able to honour their loved ones with funerals during this pandemic. I think there are going to be an awful lot of memorials once once we're all free to do so. Yes. But we're very good at that stage, but we're not good at the stage after that. And really then, you know, I felt so cut out to see when, you know, I had to deal with the paperwork and, and the legal stuff, um, the banks, you know, all the practicalities. All yeah. of these things are very hard, very hard to deal with when you don't have any anyone to help guide you on this stuff. Um, so the practicalities are hard, as I said, when, when, when you're suffering from grief and then everything else, you know, it, it, it can become very overwhelming. Um, so I think it's important that people do actually start talking about it a little bit more. It'll help salvage mental health, I think, particularly in the years that are coming now. I think a lot of people also will have been frozen in their grief and they won't be able to process it just yet because we're all actually in survival mode right now. We're yeah. all just protecting ourselves and trying to stay safe and stay alive. But once that period passes, then I think the the realisation will hit a lot of people of what the, what they have lost or who they've lost. And that's going to be the time when this conversation needs to be open. Yeah. And I don't think we do talk about this enough in Ireland, do we? No, I agree. I agree. Your recovery has been phenomenal, hasn't it? When you when you talk about how how you were at the beginning and how like damaged your your physical form was and, and, and seeing how you are today and and I saw you on the late late and and you looked beautiful and I know that you're you know you're still in a probably a phase of recovery and and still healing on every level but it is phenomenal to see like what your injuries were and where you're at today and and I know you you bow your head to all the doctors and nurses and medical science who that were there for you and 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 I really do yeah I really do you know and I mean I really had the very finest and still do by the way I still get a lot of care through St James's and this is an ongoing process I'm still getting lasered um for for certain scars for certain burns I mean there are without being boring about it medical complications that I'm going to carry for the rest of my life and I'm still on a lot of medication um but I am doing, I believe, you know, extraordinarily well, considering where I was. Look, do you know, the, the, one of the most ludicrous things that I get to rejoice on is I even have hair on my head. You know, a couple of years ago, I was bald as a coot. So, uh, you know, things are progressing slowly. Things are changing yeah. um, all, all the time. Um, yeah, uh, look, as I said, I'm very lucky to be in this country where I have very, very fine health care. My book is a a dedication to obviously my gorgeous man Brian and to my father but it's also a dedication to the amazing people in the medical fields that really saved my life and you know got me to where I am now and to my friends as well they all helped too so you know um I'm doing okay but I'm doing I'm you know I'm not an island I'm doing okay because a lot of people helped me out along the way yeah how much have you changed, do you think, in the last few years? I think I am in an, an entirely different person yeah. to whom I used to be. But I I take joy when my friends in particular treat me like the old Zoe. Okay. I don't yeah. feel, I don't feel like the old Zoe, but I like being slagged off like they used mm. to slag me off, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um 
everything is different though now. I see everything differently. I feel everything differently. Um, you can't go through an experience like this without it transforming everything in your world. Um, there are some, I suppose, some some good parts of that transformation. I, I definitely think I have a lot more. I always thought I was quite an empathetic, compassionate person. Really, I did. But now I think, ah, you, you knew nothing. Yeah. You know, um, I, I definitely, I can see other people's hurt and other people's pain, I, th I think, a lot easier than I used to. Um, because you've been to hell and back. Yeah, maybe because I have to carry that pain on my shoulders, you know, as well. But yeah, um, yeah look, I, I strive to get back to a place where I used to be, but I, I'm not really entirely sure that's the journey that I'm supposed to be taking. I think I've just got to keep going ahead now on, on this path. I know that sounds a bit schmaltzy. I hate the word journey, by the way. <laughs> I, sometimes there's no other word though, yeah. to use, but yeah. I, I, you know, I, I genuinely feel that... I've just got to keep pushing forward now and in as much as I can try and not constantly think about all of that I have lost because then I won't get out of bed yeah. in the morning if I think that way. So I've been dealt this deck now and I'm going to try and, and you know, keep going with it as best as I can. Play the cards that I've been dealt. Does that make sense? does yeah god you're amazing zoe you're amazing um do you have hopes for the future can like can you bring yourself to imagine or dream or think of i don't know is that something that or are you more day-to-day -day, minute by minute hour by hour i've always been a bit day-to-day -to, -day, to be honest with you i mean brian was great for the plans like he used to give out to me and say you know you have to have a year plan and a five-year plan and a ten-year plan. <laughs> I used to think that was hilarious. I was going to go, I don't know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. What are you talk, talking about? Um, I find it very difficult to look to the future. I really, really do. Um, but what I try and do is fill up the hours. I'm writing again. So I'm writing my second book at the moment and I'm enjoying that process. Um, and I suppose in a way that is looking to the future. It might not be the very long future, long-term future, but you know, I, I'm keeping myself busy. I keep projects going to fill up the hours, if you know what I mean. So I, I enjoy that process and I hope that writing um, will be a part of my future. Can I ask, is it a continuation or is it a an entirely different book? It's an entirely different book. There are two. There's one that's a continuation that I haven't quite got to. Okay. That's in the head. Um, the this is this new one is an entire it's a fictional book actually it's a story that I've had in my head for my entire life that I really wanted to write and funny enough it was I, I mentioned it in 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 the book that um, and as the smoke clears that the two people that would have been proudest about me publishing my book would have been Brian and my father because they were the two that constantly said, for God's sake, would you stop talking about writing a book <laughs> and just bloody well write it. So, and sadly enough, obviously they didn't have that book in mind. Yeah. Um, but sadly enough, they were the two people I wanted to celebrate the most when, when the book came out. Um, that's one of life's horrible ironies, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, I, 
that's something I want to do for the future. And, and, and so, yes, I'm, I'm now writing the original book that I had intended to write for how many? A couple of decades. Wow. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Regarding anything else in my future, I, I can't really look too far ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, that's difficult to do. That's difficult to do. I can dream, though. Yeah. And do you allow yourself to do that? Not much. Okay. <laughs> Not much. I stay in the now as much as I can. That's a safer place to go. So your book is As the Smoke Clears and it is available in bookshops all over the place. It is incredibly powerful and it does showcase what a gifted writer you are. I'm excited to, to, to you know, to hear and read about the next book that you release. So the very best of luck with that. Um, you are an incredible woman. I There are not enough words to use to describe how impressive you are. And um, I'm so sorry for being so emotional listening to you, but I was just in awe of your strength. Um, that's okay, Sheila. I went through quite a few tissues here myself. So yeah, that's that's natural. That's natural. I hope I get to meet you in person someday. But for now, it's been a privilege to talk to you. It really has. Thank you, Sheila. Likewise. And I, I enjoyed our talk today. So I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please show your support by leaving a rating or a little comment on Apple or by clicking follow on Spotify. I'd be so thankful. You've been listening to Ready To Be Real Conversations. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.